Welcome to the Empowered Investor Podcast. Have you ever felt overwhelmed by the sheer volume of choices and voices telling you how to plan or invest for your future? With his straightforward approach, host Keith Matthews of Tulet Matthews & Associates cuts through the noise to help you create a winning action plan for you and your family. The decision-making framework discussed in this show can transform you and your investment experiences and will increase your odds of becoming financially secure. Learn more and subscribe today at tma-invest.com. Welcome to the Empowered Investor Podcast. I'm joined today by my co-host, Jackson Matthews, and we're going to be doing a book review. But first of all, Jackson, how are you? I'm doing great today, Marcelo. Super excited to be back on the podcast. This is my second episode. It's going to be the first time where we're sort of having this discussion one-on-one, though. Yeah, it's interesting. It does change the format. Last time we did a book review, Us Three, with Lawrence joining us. So the dynamic will be different, but we'll have a lot of fun. So today we're going to be talking about Morgan Housel's second book called Same As Ever. So he goes through a series of events in the books, series of ideas that he thinks are same as ever and are present throughout history. The context may change, the historical context may change, but the behaviors are always present because it's human nature, right? So humans are prone to fear and to love and to want power and to have greed and to have envy. So he discusses these things and then puts a historical context in them. So what we're going to do today is we're going to break down some of those main ideas that we think are relevant for investors and Jackson, you're going to walk me through to what you think are the most relevant for investors. We're going to go over them, and then we're going to have key takeaways that our clients and listeners and investors at large can draw from. So let's go through the first one. What do you think is the most relevant one there? Yeah, so Morgan Housel alludes to these pillars of behavior that humans have shown in the past 500 years and probably will show in the next 500 years because it's same as ever. It's things that have dictated people's outcomes, people's behaviors. So to start on the first one, it's the role of envy and the role that it plays in people's decision-making, in people's psychology towards money and how they basically shape their lives. And so basically what Morgan Housel does in this book is he uses storytelling to take us through all these concepts. And I think that his storytelling actually took a step up from the last book. I think it was even better than the last book. So he takes us back to the 1950s to talk about the role of envy. And so the importance of the 1950s is when people from that generation who are older today look back on that time, they think of it as more of a golden age. And so we ask ourselves, why? Why was the 1950s a golden age? Well, you hear a lot of people, right? Like, it's like you hear the expression all the time, like the olden times. Oh, in old times, we used to have this, we used to have that. And you have like, people do have this nostalgia about that era. Yeah. And so I think in a sense, it's because he talks about most families were able to support their whole family on a single parent's income, and they could afford a nice middle-class lifestyle. But... I don't think that people were by any means better off, quote unquote. They had higher mortality rates. They had lower life expectancies. They had a smaller house for more occupants. They spent more of their income on groceries. So why is it that people think that the 1950s were a golden age? Yeah, that's so interesting, by the way. Yeah. And so 
Morgan Housel, he goes further on to detail different incomes adjusted for inflation in different decades. Right. So in 1955, like I said, this is adjusted for inflation. Mm -hmm. The median family income was 29,000. In 1965, it was 42,000. And in 2021, it was just above 70,000. Wow. And so obviously people are getting more money to be able to spend on their lifestyles and to increase their quality of life. And so we ask ourselves, where did these monetary gains come from? It didn't come from increasing inputs and putting more hours into work. It came from higher productivity and more efficiency within the workforce. So we ask ourselves now, why do people like yearn for the 50s? And it comes back to this role of envy. I think it's because people back then were less likely to experience high levels of envy as everyone was more or less on the same level. And so he talks about wages being set during World War II by the National War Labor Board, and they were setting flatter wages. And so people were less likely to look at their neighbor and think, wow, I really need the car that he has. I really want to go on the vacation that he's going on because most people actually had the same cars and they went on the same camping trips. That was just the norm back then. Don't even go back to the 50s. I remember me growing up and I said this in the podcast before. I remember in the 80s, 90s, which is where I grew up. Again, this is back in El Salvador, but you can tell me how from your experience, if that's different. But in El Salvador, I remember when growing up, what's considered middle class, right? Like nobody had like granite counters. Nobody had like super nice renovated houses, like regular trips were going to the beach or going camping. Having a big SUV was like a luxury. It was like higher incomes. And I feel like the role of envy there is that we have way more exposure of people's lifestyles now. Social media definitely doesn't help because before, like, you know, in the 50s, you had access to your community and that's it. And if people had similar things, you didn't feel left out. You were less likely to do crazier things with money, like getting into debt or doing bad decisions because you were just exposed to your community, your town, your tribe. Now with social media, you get curated lifestyles exposed to you every single day, not only from the people that you know, but from celebrities and things like this. And now you see that the bar has completely moved. Now a regular vacation is going to Europe. Now a normal car is like a big SUV that may cost you a lot of money month to month, right? Which is, if you have the income and the budget, like go ahead and do it. But I feel like this envy aspect is way more present now because of the historical context we're living in. We're constantly exposed to news and social media and people's lives. Yeah, I mean, Morgan Helso talked about the role that social media has played on envy. And there's a quote in the book that, Social media is basically just a highlight reel. It takes everybody's accomplishments and their highlights and it embellishes them and it sort of hides their negative traits because they don't choose to share that with the world. And so you go on social media and all you're seeing is highlight on highlight on highlight. And so this is, it's so easy to develop an envious point of view of your neighbor, of your friend. And so going back to the 50s, as time passed, Essentially, what happened is wealth inequality grew and so did envy. And so you take social media into account. It's basically just a steroid for envy. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a great way of putting it, actually. It has its great things, right? Like you can connect with people who are 
you haven't seen in years, you can chat to your friends on a day-to-day basis, which people didn't have that ability to connect right away in the past, but you have the downfalls of what we're talking about. But okay, that's great. But what's the takeaway here? Like, how can we deal with this? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the takeaway is, it's a quote that I'm sure many of you have heard before, but comparison is the thief of joy. And as Morgan Helsel spoke in his last book, and he also did talk about it in this book, is you need to learn how to get the goalposts to stop moving. You need to know when is enough and when to stop being envious of others. Yeah. And I think it's human nature, right? I think the first instinct that we have, because we're wired like that, is to be like, oh, why can't I have that? But I think being cognizant of it and being able to recognize it, it's the first step. And at the end of the day, you know, if you're able to do that, you will have a much better financial outcome. There is a great story in his previous book, not in this one, which I think embodies like exactly what we're talking about. It's like, it was Joseph Heller, the author of the book, Catch-22. They were at a cocktail party of like a hedge fund manager. And he was with another author. I can't remember the name, but the story's in the book. And it's irrelevant because it doesn't matter to the point. But the other author goes to Joseph Heller and says, like, doesn't it make you feel a bit like uncomfortable that this hedge fund manager will make way more money in like a month than you would in all your book sales over a lifetime. And Joseph Heller says, I have something that he doesn't have enough. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like that just embodies exactly what we're talking about, because here you have a guy who's like extremely successful, but he's managed to make the goalpost stop moving. And that's just a great story. Exactly. Good point. All right. So what's the next point, Jackson? What's the main takeaway that we have from the book? So another big theme that the book was talking about was how to manage expectations. And to open this theme up, I have a quote here from Charlie Munger. And quick shout out to Charlie Munger as he just passed away. He's a legend in this field and he was a very wise man. And so in this quote, he said, when asked, you seem extremely happy and content what's your secret to living a happy life? Charlie Munger replied, the first rule of a happy life is low expectations. If you have unrealistic expectations, you're going to be miserable your whole life. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. And so Morgan Housel goes on to add to this quote, talking about wealth and happiness being a two-part equation. And I thought this was really interesting because it's true. The two-part equation is basically what you have and what you expect slash need. And when you realize that each part is equally important, you see that the overwhelming attention we pay to getting more and the negligible attention we put on managing expectation makes little sense. Yeah, that's great. So that's what Morgan Housel said in his book. And I think that's especially true when managing that side of equation, which is expectations. It's managing your expectations is one of the things that you have in your control. So if you can put a wrap on that, then you can essentially have a better outlook on life. It's so powerful because even as we deal in life with anything, if you have high expectations, like you said, and you have no control over the outcome, you have more chances of being disappointed. This is a funny story about marriage, but I got married through the Catholic Church, right? So we had to do this marriage counseling courses and the priest goes, you know, like... I have never been married, but I know human nature. And he said, the key to a happy marriage is having low expectations. And it made me laugh because it is true. Like as you go through life and even portfolio returns, right? Like, I mean, it's okay to expect something higher when you take higher risks, right? Like in a portfolio, I always tell clients, like if you have a hundred equity portfolio versus something like 
100% in bonds or fixed income that's super safe, of course, you can expect a bond portfolio to return 20% every year. You have to also know where the expectations are coming. But I feel like if you expect that that portfolio will always surprise you, then you're always going to end up disappointed because the market is just unpredictable. You don't know where it's going to end every year. So even when people say we expect the portfolio to return 5% based on the risk that you're taking, it doesn't mean that you're going to get 5% every year. Yeah. But I think that's the role of the advisor to verbalize that expectation. Yeah, yeah, great point. And just to add on to finance and portfolio management, I think managing expectations is a great way to navigate this field because the question is not whether you will experience a shocking and rare world event in your lifetime. It's actually when you'll experience one. Morgan Household talks about, there's a quote in his book, save like a pessimist, invest like an optimist. So Morgan Housel has an analogy in this book, and I think it was probably one of the more eye-opening ones. And I've never thought of it this way, but here's his quote. A 100-year event doesn't mean it happens every 100 years. It means there's about a 1% chance of it occurring in any given year. That seems low, but when there are hundreds of different independent 100-year events, what are the odds that one of them will occur in a given year? Pretty good. Now, humans don't naturally think of 1 in 100-year events and stack multiple of them onto each other, but that's how the odds work. And so when you think of investing in your portfolio and trying to achieve your goals in the long run, this is really important because black swan events will happen in your lifetime. And so you need to be able to push through them without panic selling or exhibiting negative investor behavior so that you can benefit from long-term compounding, which is the eighth wonder in the world, according to Morgan Housel and Albert Einstein. (laughs) But essentially the question you have to ask is, not how can I earn the highest returns, but it's actually what are the best returns I can sustain for the longest period of time? Because the longest period of time and being invested for that period is what is going to deliver the compounding magic. Yeah. And I think right there, it's the takeaway, right? Because at the end of the day, if you know these things, right, like black swans, events that are unpredictable, that change the course of history, things like 9-11, a pandemic, these things will happen. At the end of the day, we can't forget, Jackson, that the world is billions of people interacting every single day. So your sample size for outcomes is huge. And that's what he means, right? He means that you don't need like very small samples for these big things to happen. They happen because you have millions and millions and millions of things happening every single day. And that's just the law of numbers, right? Like people think about evolution sometimes and they think about this, how could this happen, right? It's exactly that. It's millions and millions and millions of outcomes over millions of years happening over and over, right? Like that's how we get evolution, right? That's how you get a black swan. That's how you get a pandemic. So it is important to think that when we're dealing with portfolios and financial plans and people's retirement dreams is how can we give them a plan and a portfolio that once we're setting it up, we're managing the expectations properly and they can stay invested for the long term, which is everything, right? Like how do you get those returns? You get them by showing up in the market and staying invested. You don't get them by getting out and speculating and doing random things with the portfolio, which is, it sounds so common sense, but so many people fall into that trap. Yes. All right. What's the next takeaway that we have from the book? So the next theme we talk about, 
And we sort of relate it back to what we do in portfolio management, but it's don't predict. And we talk about the randomness and the odds of millions of different events and how it's so hard to predict outcomes because these events compound on each other. And so there's a couple quotes we're going to talk about here, but the first one is the absurdity of past connections should humble your confidence in predicting future ones. And so Marcelo just spoke about that. There's millions of independent events that happen every single day. How can somebody predict the outcome of a global situation? Yeah, it's impossible. Okay. And so there's an example, a story in the book, and it talks about a submarine, the Lusitania submarine that got its trip delayed by one day. And on its travel, it got hit by a random torpedo. And because it got hit by this random torpedo, the U.S. decided to enter World War I. That's now, crazy. there's a couple of random events that compounded on each other here, but the U.S. entering World War I is not an insignificant event. It's not. It literally changed the course of history. Exactly. Small details, small outcomes can make a huge lasting effect on the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy how one event can change completely the trajectory of history. And not to get too deep into this, but if you look at World War I, it definitely changed the trajectory of history. Even Winston Churchill said that World War II started when World War I ended. That's what created Germany into what it became during World War II. And then from then on, we can go through all the events, and that's how we end up in the world order that we have now. And just by delaying a boat, right? I mean, yeah. that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And so I know you're wondering probably, okay, why are we talking about all this history? <laughs> so we're going to relate it back to the markets, investing and portfolio management. But I did some research on the SPIVA reports, which is, it stands for standard and poor indices versus active. And it's basically a report card that compares the returns of an active manager to a standard index, which is a more passive way to invest. An index is a grouping of stocks that represents a pocket of the market. And so what this report card said was that 95% of investment managers underperformed the S&P TSX composite over the last five years. So we're talking about Canadian managers here. Right. So if I hired a Canadian portfolio manager, you're telling me that 95% underperformed the benchmark? Exactly. Over wow. a five-year period. Wow. So we're talking about this because, as we just spoke about, the compounding of millions of random events plays such a big part in future outcomes. It's hard to believe that any one person can predict a large global outcome and the trajectory of markets. Well, that's the wisdom of the crowds, right? Like the market knows collectively more than one singular individual. Exactly. Yeah. And so the theme we're talking about is to not predict. And so if money managers can't do it well, then professional money managers we're talking about here, I don't think your brother-in-law, I don't think your neighbor or your friend can do it much better. And by the way, we're advising to tune out all kinds of predictions, optimistic ones, pessimistic ones, because when you tune out the optimistic predictions that this stock is going to the moon, that sounds great, but it might be harder to tune out a pessimistic one. Because here's a quote from the book again, Bad news gets more attention than good news because pessimism is seductive and feels more urgent than optimism. Okay, so to throw a bit of a statistic at this, 
one of the stories that Morgan talks about in the book is about a 75-year-old starting to work at 25. He has 50 years of experience as an economist. But how many recessions has there been in the last 50 years? Seven. There's been seven times in his career that he's been able to measure his skills. So we're pretty much all left guessing. And so when someone says, there's going to be a recession now, you should go to cash. It's not that wise to listen to predictions in general, but to listen to one person over the whole investment market. Yeah. The interesting thing is that we're blinded by two things, right? We're blinded sometimes, but our inner beliefs, we have behavioral biases. I mean, we did a whole podcast on this. And then we're lured by the shiny title of somebody's education sometimes, right? So when we hear economists from Harvard or Nobel Prize winner, it doesn't always work. We've had cases of institutions or investment management firm being run by this type of people. And they're part of that 95% that don't outperform the market. And, you know, I know the numbers in the U.S. are, are, are similar. I know the numbers in international funds is similar because we get this PIVA report for everything. So we know from evidence that it's extremely hard to predict. And I've said this many times. Again, the market is a mid-grinder of opinions. You have billions of people interacting every day. And the market only works because people are wrong and people are right. The whole point of the market is that some people have different opinions. When a stock changes hands, if somebody's selling, somebody buying, they have two people right there have very different opinions about something. So to believe that one person will know exactly what will happen is just, it's a fool's errand. It's crazy. Okay, Jackson. So what's your takeaway for this theme? Yeah, I, I think this is an obvious one because we've been talking about it the whole time, but it's to not listen to anybody's predictions because nobody can predict significant outcomes consistently. They may have done it once in the past or twice in the past, but to adhere to a philosophy of just predicting, it's risky and it's not the prudent way to achieve your long-term goals. Yeah. And especially now, you know, we're entering the season of market predictions from every single bank and major institution. They are great reading for entertainment, but just keep it at that. Keep it as entertainment, I would say. So I think I have a specific takeaway for this section. And I've heard many times people say, oh, if we hit a recession, if we hit a market drawdown, how do we know that this time is different? Like what tells you that the economy will not just collapse? And there's a great quote in the book and a great section in the book that talks about when the magic happens. Morgan does a great job of talking about necessity being the mother of all inventions. So a lot of the best inventions that the economy knows in the United States were invented during the Great Depression. And there's a great quote in the book, and it says something like this, the biggest changes and the most important innovations don't happen when everyone is happy and things are going well. They tend to occur during and after a terrible event. So think about COVID, you know, how quickly we came up with a vaccine. Think about people who just hustle and invent ways of doing things better. Go back to hunter and gatherers, you know, the guy who said, I'm going to go out hunting today and get food for everybody when like they've had like four or five days without food. That's why capitalism works. That's why markets work. Yeah. And that's a good one, Marcelo. And I think when I hear that, there's somebody I think specifically of, and it's David Booth, the founder of Dimensional Fund Advisors, because he's a huge advocate of human ingenuity. 
he says all the time, there's always going to be a market collapse and there's always going to be a recovery. And what gets us through that? It's human ingenuity. It has in the past and it will in the future. Yeah. So knowing that for sure, like, I mean, predicting it's useless. All right. So we're going to wrap up here. So Jackson, I cannot help but think about what is same as ever for TMA, for Toledo Matthews and Associate? Like, what do you think is the common themes that we have that are going to be constant forever in our firm? Yeah. So, I mean, this is really just talking about the pillars of our firm and I guess you could say the culture and what we value really. And so I think it's clear. The first one is that we'll always be client-centric. Yeah. And that's huge because in this business, I've said this before in the past, you have the ability to get caught up in rabbit holes, for lack of a better term, you know, on investment returns and markets and abstract concepts about money. It's easy to sometimes lose sight of what's important, but client-centric is the way we have defined the business, so to speak. We make sure that the clients are listened to, they're understood, that they understand what they have in their portfolio. Like we spend a tremendous amount of time at the beginning trying to understand the person, their money values, where they want to go. We don't get to any meaning just talking about finances and numbers. And I think that's very important. And I think that's the point number one that I, I came up, up with what is same as ever for TMA. That's a great point. We have a couple points here that is always going to be same as ever for TMA. I right. think what else? I'll give another one and then I'll let you give a couple because we both believe in them. So I think the next one is that we'll always adhere to an evidence-based investment philosophy. And when the firm started operating, they didn't just decide, oh yes, this is the philosophy we're going to choose. No, they wholeheartedly believed in it because that's the way that they think the founders and the advisors at this firm believe is the best way to invest. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's all based on evidence. I mean, that's the beauty of having a model where you are compensated by the client directly, that you have the ability to choose a portfolio that you believe is the best for the client. And it's based, and for us is that it's based on evidence. So we can always have the flexibility of doing our due diligence and evaluating things and how things are moving in the market. But basically, when you have an evidence-based investment philosophy, it says it in the title, right? You're going to be relying on evidence and that evidence has to be robust. It has to be provable. It has to be tested. So that's something that it's going to be same as ever for us, I think. Yeah, exactly. So Marcelo, how about you? Do you have any points that you think will be same as ever? Yeah. The third one I would say is we will always play the long game. So that means no market timing, no speculation, staying invested, because obviously everything we've talked about, but it's one of the themes that we always talk about with clients is sometimes I'm meeting a new client and they haven't been with us a long time. And they say things like, oh, what will you do when there's a market recession? And that's why you spend a lot of time explaining to them what the long game means in their plan, right? It's staying invested. It's focusing on asset allocation and planning. And then when that recession hits and you have a 60-40 portfolio, you won't be moving anything, right? Because you've already projected into 30, 35 years. And you know that markets will do their thing, right? They'll move up and down. But I think the long game and staying in that mindset will always be same as ever for us. And then the last one is we will always diversify. We will never put everything in one market or one asset class. So we know that diversification is 
almost like the only free lunch that we have in finance, right? And it's available for everybody. So that means we'll always diversify internationally. We won't over allocate in one market. We will be internationally diversified and across many asset classes. And I think that'll stay same as ever. Absolutely. All right, Jackson, thank you for joining us on this podcast and hope to see you more often. Yeah, it was an amazing podcast. I'm super happy we did this. And I always love discussing books with you, Marcelo. You're a big reader. All right. See you next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Empowered Investor Podcast, hosted by Keith Matthews. Please visit tma-invest.com to subscribe to this podcast, learn more about how his firm helps Canadian investors, or to request a complimentary copy of The Empowered Investor. Investments and investing strategies should be evaluated based on your own objectives. Listeners of this podcast should use their best judgment and consult a financial expert prior to making any investment decisions based on the information found in this podcast.